Oh Lord, as we come to your word now, we thank you for your word. We recognize that your word is like food to starving people. And we come hungry, Lord. We come asking that you would feed us with your word, that you would nourish us, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to sharpen us, to encourage us, to instruct us, to convict us. You know what purposes need to be accomplished in our lives in order for us to grow in Christ's likeness. And we pray that as we study your word, that your word would do this work in us. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 15. We're not going to be finishing John chapter 15 today, but we're going to come close. I'm going to try to finish it next week. Uh, Try to get it done before we go into December, where we start with a psalm and then get back into John. And we'll start in John 16 uh, next month, Lord willing. Uh, But today we will be in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. I've told some of you uh, that that I've been watching, or that I I finished watching, uh, a mini-series on on TV that chronicled the history of a prescription painkiller that ultimately resulted in the deaths of thousands of people across our country and got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people addicted to opioids. Uh, That painkiller, as you may know, is uh, OxyContin. Uh, But I wanted to know just how how accurate this miniseries was, because it, it, was, it was fiction, but it was real life, like kind of a true crime fiction type thing. So I wanted to know how accurate it was, and so I started looking up some uh, reports on the internet. I was looking for medical uh, journal articles and things like that, and sure enough, what I found as I was reading through uh, medical journals and other various articles is that the, the show was extremely accurate in portraying what happened. If, what happened. if anything, it didn't show us all the, the gory details. But one journal article said this. It said, quote, from 1996 to 2001, Purdue Pharmaceuticals conducted more than 40 national pain management and speaker training conferences at resorts in Florida, Arizona, and California. More than 5,000 physicians, pharmacists, and uh, nurses attended these all-expenses-paid symposia where they were recruited and trained for Purdue's National Speaker Bureau. It goes on to say, one of the cornerstones of Purdue's marketing was the use of sophisticated marketing data to influence physicians prescribing. Drug companies compile prescriber profiles on individual physicians detailing the prescribing patterns of physicians nationwide in an effort to influence doctors' prescribing habits. Through these profiles, a drug company can identify the highest and lowest prescribers of particular drugs in a single zip code, county, state, or the entire country. One of the critical foundations of Purdue's marketing plan for OxyContin was to target the physicians who were the highest prescribers for opioids in the country. The resulting database would help identify physicians with large numbers of chronic pain patients. Unfortunately, this same database would also identify 
which physicians were simply the most frequent prescribers of opioids and, in some cases, the least discriminate prescribers, end quote. It was a terrible, terrible thing. It was an epidemic. Uh, but the promotion of this killing painkiller uh, was unlike anything that the pharmaceutical marketing world has ever seen before. I've never seen anything like it before or since. Uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals put out OxyContin fishing hats to, produce, uh, to promote their, their product. They put out plush toys with OxyContin written on them. They even had music. Uh, there was actually an album that they put out with a song on it titled Get Into the Swing with OxyContin. And it all came with the assurance that, uh, from, from Purdue Pharmaceuticals that fewer than 1% of all users would become addicted as long as they took it uh, as prescribed. And of course, if you look back on it, you know that that was an absolutely enormous lie. But this is something, this type of hiding the, the, the gory details, hiding the bad details, is something that the pharmaceutical industry has done ever since the inception of the industry. Pharmaceutical companies are known for emphasizing the, the positives while downplaying the negatives on their products. That's why you get a, a couple dozen warnings now because of some lawsuits, because they were doing this. But you'll get a couple dozen warnings every time a ph pharmaceutical uh, commercial comes on uh, for all the possible... Um, side effects of their medications. But even with those warnings for these pharmaceutical medications, the goal is still to minimize the downside, to minimize the perceived severity, and to emphasize all the good benefits, which we know is a common tactic in sales, really. The consumer will respond favorably if the downside of a product seems either minimal or non-existent. And you know what? Salespeople know that, and they use that fact to their advantage. But this is one practice, this idea of sweeping away the, the, the negatives and hiding the negatives and downplaying all the negatives. That is one practice that nobody can ever accuse Jesus of. He had a practice of consistently letting his listeners know that there was a cost to following him and that they would be wise to count the cost if they are to follow him. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, is what he said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. In one instance where he was making sure that people understood that it wasn't just all upside, but that there was a cost to following Him. Now here in our study of Jesus' last discourse, we've seen Jesus speaking words of comfort. We've seen Him speaking words of assurance to His disciples because He's preparing to leave them. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He'll rise again, of course. But even after that, He'll be with them for 40 more days and then He'll ascend into heaven. And tough times lay ahead for the disciples. So he's preparing them for what is to come. In chapter 14, Jesus told them of the benefits and the blessings of him leaving. He told them that he would ask the Father and that the Father would send the Holy Spirit who would fill and empower uh, his people. 
But as we came to chapter 15, we saw Jesus uh, begin to illustrate the relationship that would continue even after He's gone. The relationship that would continue to exist after His departure, and that is that His disciples would continue to abide in Him. And as they did, they would bear good fruit. Good fruit that pleases God. Good fruit that pleases God. Christ and glorifies Christ. He would, leave, uh, he would leave them, but He would not stop loving them. He would continue to love them as the Father loves the Son. And they would grow in the likeness of the Son as they went forth, carrying out the Great Commission. All the while, the disciples would love one another as Christ loved the church. But there's a good reason that the disciples would need all these benefits and all these blessings. It wasn't just to bless them. It was to ensure that the mission would succeed. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't just going to be an easy road to victory for the disciples. No, the mission that the church has been given is name with the journey. Yes, rich blessings laid ahead at the end of the journey. But the journey from here to glory was not going to be without difficulties. Rather, there would be incredible trials to endure and to overcome. The warning of what is to come is articulated clear as day in the passage that we come to today. And it's this, that the church would be hated. Not that the church would be appreciated, not that the church would be loved by the world, but that the church would be absolutely hated by the world around them. For several generations now, it hasn't been uncommon for Christians in the West to pray for and to, uh, to, to support either financially or by sending missionaries to go to foreign lands where Christians have been actively and aggressively persecuted for their faith. If you know the stories, there are stories of Christians in those places who say, Please be careful about who you send. We worry about you for the opposite reason. They were worried that the type of environment, the type of easy Christianity that we have here in the West was producing shallow Christians. And we've seen that come to fruition. Especially as the culture is getting darker and darker and Christianity is becoming less and less acceptable to them. Uh, the the easy Christianity that we've had for so long in this country has produced an entirely superficial, if not false, type of Christianity in so many places. Sadly, that tends to be exactly what you find in places where the cost of following Jesus is less than it is in various other places where if you're going to make a commitment to following Jesus, you better mean it because it's going to really cost you something. But Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even where it seems like the culture accepts Christianity. Even where it seems like the culture is friendly with Christianity. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus warned us with even stronger language in the passage that we come to today that the world will hate us. 
and that we would therefore be very wise to count the cost of following Jesus. And that's the point of the passage that we come to today. The previous passage that we saw last week began and concluded with the same instruction that Christians love one another. Uh, in fact, that we love one another as Christ has loved us. But now we're introduced to this contrast. A contrasting truth that while we will love one another and while we will be loved by Christ with a love that's like the love that the Father has for the Son, we will also be hated by the world. So we start with verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 15, where Jesus continues saying, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. See the contrast? The previous one was bookended by love, the command to love one another. And here in verse 17, or verse 18, immediately after verse 17, he reminds us that if there's one thing that will characterize the way that the world feels toward the church, toward Christians, it will be hatred. It will be hatred. Looking only at verses 18 and 19 for a moment here, do you see any words that get repeated over and over here? Uh, well, four times we see the word hate. Actually, that's three times in the Greek. But there's another word that gets repeated six times, plus one uh, use of a pronoun in its place, and that word is world. World. Now, I've warned us before that when we come to the word world, we should be very careful. We don't want to jump to any conclusions immediately as to its meaning, at least not too quickly, because that word, the Greek word, has ten different definitions, and some of those definitions are opposite one another. So we need to be very careful when we come to the word world. Uh, one definition of world is uh, the physical earth. Uh, that is the the globe, uh, you know, all of creation, the the trees, the rocks, the waters, all of those things, uh, inanimate things. Well, we can rule that out as what Jesus is saying here, because those are inanimate things. Uh, they neither hate us nor do they love us. Uh, you know, they they just exist. They're inanimate. Uh, but no, what this use of the word world refers to is the world system that is in rebellion against God. And that becomes increasingly obvious that that's what Jesus is talking about as we go through this passage. The world in this passage, in this case, is the satanic system that hates God, that hates His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that hates God's people. This is the same world that we're told not to be a part of, and not to be friends with. James writes in James 4.4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, it's the same world that John would use when he warned us about loving the world in his first epistle, uh, where he writes in chapter 2, verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if, if you were to take this principle people at the mall or wherever and, and ask them, do you, you know, do you hate Christians? I, I'd imagine that there's a pretty good chance that their answer would be 
no or not really, uh, although I think it's far more likely now than it was even five or ten years ago that their answer would be yes. Uh, but consider the line that Jesus drew uh, back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, where He said, He who is not with Me is against Me. Now, I've talked to enough non-believers to know that if you really press them, don't, don't just ask them the, the simple question, hey, do you, do you hate Christianity? But if you really press them on what Jesus taught, what Christianity means, uh, they will start to get very squeamish. They will get very uncomfortable because the truth is their hearts are in complete rebellion against God. Jesus told us this truth. He told us the truth about how they feel. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And that if, by the way, doesn't indicate uncertainty. Rather, in the Greek, the way the Greek is constructed in this sentence, it's written to essentially mean, if the world hates you, and it will. So this is not uncertain. Rather, this is certain that the world will hate Christians. This applies equally to unbelieving Democrats and Republicans and every other political party. It applies to people of every shape, every size, every ethnicity. It applies to every religion outside of Christianity. These groups, if you were to, to look at them, they, they are very, very different from one another in so many ways, and yet they are just as united in their hatred for Christians as Christians are in their love not only for Jesus, but for one another. R.C. Sproul once said, quote, The greatest weakness that is in the church today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men. What he meant is that the modern church has this tendency to seek the world's approval. That the church in our day and age has this, this tendency to, 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 to want to be liked by the world, to want to be loved and appreciated by the world. We have this tendency to want the world's approval and to, therefore, seek it. Now, why would we want to be liked by the world. There are some good reasons for that. So, so that we can share the gospel with them, okay, but how far are we willing to go to be liked by them? Because if we're being faithful to Christ, what he says here is that they won't like us, that they'll hate us. And so this tendency to want to be liked by the world can become an evil, wicked propensity not to be practiced but to be repented of. Because if the church is faithful, the world will never, never like her. And they'll never approve of her. This is why you see so many churches today heralding the same plea for social justice that the world is heralding. All the while remaining ignorant of the fact that the justice that the world is calling for is not justice according to Scripture. It's actually the opposite of justice as Scripture defines it. We will never be liked by the world. And if the church ever has the same message that the world has, you know that something has gone very, very wrong. But the warning is clear. In the, in the words of J.C. Ryle, he says, quote, To be a Christian, it will cost a man the favor of 
the world. End quote. Being a disciple of Jesus has a cost. Believing in Jesus faithfully has a cost. We've been given the free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yes. But that salvation that He has freely given us carries some hard implications that apply to our daily lives as we see here in our passage. So the question that we might be left asking ourselves is, why? Why would the world hate us? Jesus gives us three reasons. First, look at verse 19. First, He says, the world hates us because we're not of the world. You, if you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love its own. That's reason number one right there. If we conformed to the world, if we conformed to their ways, to their thoughts, to their values, to their hatred and rebellion of God and biblical morality, the world would have absolutely no problem with us if we were of them, if we were like them. Our love for Jesus unites Christians. Our love for Jesus also divides Christians from the world. And because we're not of them, because we're not conformed to their values and their ideologies, they are united in their hatred for Christians. Now the world has always hated nonconformists. Uh, there are all kinds of secular stories about how pagan nonconformists and pagans who uh, questioned the, the, the status quo were either you know, cast out of society or, or put to death. Socrates, for example, was a pagan who was put to death because he questioned the status quo. He, he made people feel uncomfortable. He was a nonconformist. A nonconformist can't be controlled. A nonconformist can't be manipulated as easily as the conformist can be. But Christians are really supposed to be the ultimate nonconformists. Or we should be. After all, Scripture warns us very specifically do not be conformed to the world. Romans 12.2. So the first reason <clears throat> that the world hates us is because we're not of them. We're not conformed to their desires and their ambitions, their values and ideologies and beliefs. The second reason that Jesus gives for the world hating His people is also right here in verse 19. Look again at verse 19 where Jesus says, "...but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you." Talking about the now, this is once again clearly and unequivocally talking about the doctrine of predestination, of election. Christ just told the disciples back in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And this is sort of a, a reiteration of that uh, profound truth. None of Jesus' people through the centuries chose him. That's what he's saying here. That throughout the centuries to come, the church would be hated for one reason, because you're not of them. Number two, because Jesus chose us out of the world. 
So this is something that applies throughout the century. All of us, by nature, were born in rebellion against God. None of us sought Him. None of us desired to know or to believe in Him. And none of us would have chosen Him were it not for His grace working in us to turn our hearts toward Him. But He chose us. He chose us and He gave us a mission. He gave us a purpose in this world. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, Although the world rejects Christ's salvation and despises His work, it also hates those who have been chosen by Him for it. End quote. In fact, this doctrine is so hated, there are even Christians choosing people this doctrine of election. Ask them, by the way, when you're talking about God choosing people and how much they hate the fact that we believe that God chose people, ask them if they hate the fact that God chose Israel in order to demonstrate His glory in her by freeing her from slavery to Egypt, which was a picture of salvation, by the way, and of being freed from the world. Ask them if they hate that God chose Israel without Israel asking to be chosen. I've never heard of any Christian ever say that they hate that God chose Israel by His own sovereign accord. But we should remember that there were even Israelites in the wilderness who hated that God had chosen them. Remember their mumbling and their murmuring? Oh, we remember the fish and, and, the, and the leeks and the cucumbers and the melons that we used to eat back in Egypt. Don't you guys miss that? Oh, I miss that so much. What, you want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to the world? You want to go back to slavery? We saw how much people hated the doctrine of election in Jesus' time as well. Uh, as he taught them the doctrine of election back in verse or in uh, chapter six, he said that nobody can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws a person to him. And we saw that immediately after that, a massive number of his followers walked away from him. Few things draw the ire. Few things draw the anger and the hatred of the natural mind more than the doctrine of predestination. That God, in accordance with nothing but the sovereign counsel of His own will, chooses to save some, but not others. Now as we saw in our previous lesson, you might remember Jesus didn't only mean this of the disciples. None of this part of the discourse applied only to them and to no other disciples to follow, but only to them. It all applies both to them and to all Christians that would come after them. So the first reason that the world hates Jesus' people is because we are not of them. The second reason is because we've been chosen by God to accomplish His purposes on earth. The third reason is our unity with Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. The world hates Christians by virtue of our unity, by virtue of our union with Christ. They hate Him, and because they hate Him, they necessarily also hate His bride. 
Because they hate the master, they also hate the slaves or the servants. The the slaves aren't more loved by the world than the master is. We're associated with Him. Our, Our allegiance, our loyalty is first and foremost unto Him. We love Him. We obey Him. And we defy man when man's desires come into conflict with what Christ has instructed us in His Word. And therefore, we draw the scorn of the world. The bridegroom doesn't just suffer persecution by the world while the bride just sits back and and remains at peace with the world. No, because of the bride and the bridegroom's union, they receive the same hatred, the same animosity by the world. When Christ would be away from them, when He would depart, and the, the world is no longer able to strike at Christ as they are here in this passage. Of course, they're about to strike at Him ultimately, crucifying Him the next day. But when Jesus is gone and they're no longer able to physically strike out at Him, they will strike out. The world will strike out at those who are closest to Him. So those who represent Him through the centuries here on earth. The world doesn't hate us because of the way we look, contrary to what some of you might think, or because of the things that we do. Actually, Christians throughout uh, the centuries have done very good things. Where do you think uh, educational centers come from? Uh, That was started by Christians. Where do you think hospitals come from? Those were started by Christians. These great ideas that make society so much better than it would be without them come from the church. So it's Not because of these things that the world hates us. No, the world hates Christians simply because the world hates our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, right, that to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ Himself. We know that, right? Remember what Paul said, or what Jesus said to Paul when he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul had been persecuting the, the church with so much zeal, but Jesus stopped him in the middle of the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The understanding was that by persecuting the church, Saul was persecuting Jesus. Christians are an extension of Jesus. Uh, like branches, are an extension of the vine. The world hates the true vine, and thus they hate the branches of the true vine. The road, friends, the road that leads to glory is difficult. The road that leads to glory is, is narrow. And there are thorns, and there are pitfalls along the way that will wound us, that will maybe even frighten us, that will tempt us to be discouraged. But we must not allow ourselves to grow discouraged because eternity with Christ is at stake and lies only a very, very short ways ahead. I know the journey can be very long. I know the journey can be very painful. But our reward, our destination, will make it worth it. And eternity in His presence will be more glorious than any pastor could possibly describe with words alone. Rather than being downcast, rather than being discouraged at the difficulties of the journey, let us rather be encouraged 
by remembering that if we are hated, if we are persecuted by the world, that that is actually just strong evidence of the genuine nature of our faith. If we are acting out our faith, we will be persecuted. If we're not persecuted, it means people don't realize that we're a Christian. So the question is, if you were to be tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And if you're being persecuted, well, that's, that's one very, very strong piece of evidence of genuine faith. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, he says, persecution helps to prove that we are children of God and have treasure in heaven. It supplies evidence that we really are born again, that we have grace in our hearts and are heirs of glory. He goes on to say, persecution in short is like the goldsmith's stamp on real silver and gold. It is one of the marks of a converted man. End quote. So when the world hates you, when the world persecutes you, when the world reviles you, remember this. Remember, number one, that whatever you come up against, Christ is still sovereign over that circumstance. But number two, that's the worst that they can do. They can never snatch you from the Redeemer's hand. They can never take away your reward and glory. All of this should lead us to ask though, okay, so they hate us because of our union with Christ. Why do they hate Christ so much? Why do they hate Jesus so much? And the most obvious answer, I guess, is found right here in verse 21. It's because they don't know the One who sent Him. They don't know the Father. Now, now the the meaning of that term to know isn't just to, to intellectually know, as, as, you know, to be familiar with. Uh, but biblically, to know also means to set one's love or affection upon another. Uh, think of Romans 8.29, which says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. It doesn't say that God foreknew what His people would do, although of course He did know that. It doesn't say that He foreknew who would believe and who wouldn't, and that He would elect based on that, uh, although of course He knew who would believe. But why did He know who would believe? Because He would give them the gift of faith. Because, and why would He give them the gift of faith? Because He foreknew them. From eternity past, He set His love on them, is what that means. He foreknew what everybody would do. Not just His people. Not just those who were uh, predestined. But He foreknew His people in a way that He did not foreknow those who were not His people. He foreknew them personally. That is, He set His love upon them in eternity past. Because the world neither knows in an intellectual sense, they neither know God nor love God, they don't love the one whom God sent, and that is Jesus. But God, but Jesus continues to explain the reasons for the world's hatred against him in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 22 to 24. Jesus continues saying, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now if you think that any of what we have covered 
thus far in this passage about the world's hatred, if you think that this has seemed a little bit irrational or doesn't quite make any sense, this is really where we start to see man's uh, the natural man's lack of sound thought and sound reason. The first reason that Jesus lays out here for the world's hatred of Him is His words. His words. Well, let's make sure we understand what Jesus meant when He said, if I had not come... Well, He's not saying to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Well, He's not saying... Well, we can be sure of this. He's not saying that they would have been sinless uh, if He only would not have come and spoken to the world. What He means is that He came with a specific message a specific uh, message that we call the Gospel. Good news. If people refuse to believe and, and to accept the Gospel, how much more guilty are they of the sin that they've chosen to bear when they could have had their burden lifted from them? So Jesus was humble and, and gracious with people as He taught to them, as He spoke to them. He freely invited them to come to Him for grace, to come for, uh, to Him for peace with God, to come to Him to receive eternal life. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't uh, hypocritical. He wasn't selfish or, or self-serving in the way that He spoke to them. There was nothing wrong with the way that He spoke to them. Nobody ever could have presented the Gospel to them more clearly or more tenderly than He did. And that has a lot to do with why they hated Him. Because prior to His coming, prior to His speaking to them, they could say that they didn't believe because the messengers who brought good news were fallen. The prophets of the Old Testament, oh, they were so harsh. Those guys were so, so arrogant. Those guys were so sinful. Okay, you know, the, the prophets were human, right? The Old Testament prophets were human. They had a sin nature. So, yeah, I imagine that the prophets did sometimes have bad moments. But not so with Jesus. Jesus spoke humbly. Jesus spoke graciously, lovingly, and thereby exposed their sinful rejection of His message for what it was. It was just sin. It was just their hatred for God and their distaste for His grace. They could no longer blame their sinful contempt on... Well, it, You've got fallen messengers because God sent a perfect messenger that wasn't fallen and man still rejected him. The second reason they hate Jesus is spelled out pretty forthrightly in verse 23. They hated Jesus because they hated the Father. That's still true to this day, by the way. The Father and the Son are a package deal. If you truly love one, you will truly love the other. You can't claim to love the Father and not love the Son, and you can't claim to love the Son but not love the Father. The hatred that the world has for the Father is the same hatred that they have for Jesus. After all, the words that Jesus spoke are the same words that the Father had Him speak. You remember what Jesus said back in chapter 12, verse 49. He said, I did not speak on My own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent Me has given Me a commandment and, uh, as to what to say and what to speak. So, 
To reject what Jesus says is to reject what the Father has had Him say. To reject the Gospel that Jesus brings is to reject God altogether. To hate Jesus is to hate God the Father. To hate God the Father is to hate Jesus. The third reason that the world hates Jesus is because of His works. First, because of His words. Second, because they hate the One who sent Him. Third, they hate Him because of His works. Jesus says in verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated Me and My Father as well. Now again, this isn't to say that the world would have no sin, that the world would be sinless and and perfect before God if Jesus hadn't come into the world. No, it's saying that Jesus is the light which came into the world and exposed the darkness for what it was. It exposed sin for what it was. Jesus came to do the works of Him who sent Him. We saw that back when Jesus healed the blind man in chapter 9. He said to the disciples, we must work the works of Him who sent Me as long as it's day. And like the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus ultimately left people with no legitimate excuse for not putting their faith in Him. Maybe the most astounding example of this was when Jesus fed the 5,000 back in chapter 6. It was 5,000 families. And not a single one out of these 5,000 families, roughly 20,000, 25,000 people there, and not a single one out of them believed. And yet we have people who are convinced that they will believe if you present them enough evidence man, you must really think you're special if those 25,000 didn't believe, but, but you will. No, that's not how it works. Because faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. Right. Seeing isn't believing in God's economy. No amount of evidence will convince a single person to believe. So why does anybody believe? Because of God's grace working in us, changing the heart of stone into a heart of living flesh. Apart from God's grace, people by nature, they're not just ambivalent toward God. They're not just eh, give or take toward God. They hate God. They are in rebellion toward God. And one of the most pointed and powerful ways of demonstrating this fact is seen in the way that people so casually blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by using His name as a euphemism for profanity. We've all heard it. It's been in movies. It's on TV. It's all around us. We hear people using the Lord's name instead of using a curse word. Listen, you'd be better off using that curse word than uttering the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in its place. The only reason that people do this, the only reason that people use Jesus' name this way and blaspheme His name this way is because... They hate Him with an irrational hatred. Don't claim to love Him if you use His name as a euphemism for profanity. Instead, repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. God can forgive even that sin. Ask Him to. Ask Him to help you to to train and to more than you love to sin. Ask Him for grace. He loves to forgive more than you love to sin. 
But think about it. What other historical, respected, religious figures have their name used that way? The same way that people use Jesus' name. The same way that people blaspheme Jesus' name. Why don't people use Muhammad's name that way? Or Confucius, or Buddha, or Joseph Smith? I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Why don't we use those names as euphemisms for curse words? The answer is very simple. Because people by nature don't hate those men. But they do hate Jesus. Jesus concludes this section by noting that there is no legitimate, no rational reason for the world to hate Him. Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus says, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated Me without a cause. If they hated Jesus for no cause, if they hated Jesus for no reason, how can we, how dare we expect to be treated any differently? How dare we expect to be treated better than He was treated? Can we consider ourselves just exempt from persecution, from hatred and trials caused by the world's hatred for our Master? No. There are no exemptions, no exceptions to the fact that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The same world that hated our Lord so much that they set a murderer free in order to murder Jesus will not leave Jesus' people unharmed. You probably have seen, especially over the course of the past five or ten years, you've probably seen the way that our culture has become increasingly hostile toward us, toward the church. It was either around the year 2000 or 2004 election that they started to notice that the evangelical Christian demographic was very influential in the outcome of elections, and the world has been waging war on the church more fiercely than ever before in the history of our country ever since then. That's why today you see articles like the one I saw this week titled, Study, uh, Most White Evangelicals Don't Want to Live in a Religiously Diverse Country. How dare they? You know, according to this study, quote, 57% of, of white evangelicals indicate that they'd prefer the U.S. to be a nation primarily made up of people who follow the Christian faith, end quote. As if how dare we? Listen, people are going to hell without believing in the gospel. And faith comes by hearing. But they're trying to silence us. Only we understand why we have to keep preaching the gospel. Because if the people that don't believe in the gospel are going to hell, and we've been given a mission of preaching the gospel to those people, would that not be what love would compel us to do? Wouldn't we want our neighbors to all believe and be saved? Of course we would. But this is very common thinking in our day and age. That those Christians, they're, they're not inclusive at all. They, they don't want diversity at all. The, the world loves diversity so much, they think that it would be better if everybody just believed whatever they want. Of course that's what they believe. And by the way, if they value diversity so much, wouldn't they want people who hold our religious views uh, included in the discussion? No? Oh, okay, so, so they don't really like diversity all that much then. I mean, you get the point. It's irrational. It's completely unsound reasoning. Listen, if you have never 
personally believed in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that you see the cognitive dissonance in all of this. How completely irrational it is to hate Jesus. The irrationality, the lack of sound reasoning in hating Jesus. My hope is that you see that. If you're not a Christian, that you would see how irrational it is for you to reject and for you to hate God for offering to forgive you. Jesus has already exposed your unbelief as anything but innocent or ignorant. Rather, it is sinful and it is willfully ignorant. Willingly sinful. The good news though, the good news for you, if you're not a Christian, is that Christ nevertheless extends the offer of forgiveness to you. If you are still breathing, if you have a heartbeat, that offer is extended to you. His grace is received by believing in Him, seeing Him as the only, the one and only refuge from God's wrath. Believing that He died the death that you deserve to die. And then raising again on the third day from the grave. See, the Gospel isn't just for Christians. It's for people also who have spent their entire lives in defiant unbelief as well. Do you believe that Christ has the power to change your heart? To remove the hatred that you have for Him? Count the cost. Consider the consequences of your willful rebellion against Him. Jesus told His disciples to count the cost because there is a cost to following Christ, but the cost is even greater for rejecting Him. Ask Him to help your unbelief. If you pray that with all sincerity, I have no doubt that He will help you and that He will fill your heart with faith. But if you're already a Christian... When you read and consider a passage like this, you should be encouraged by what the Lord has told us. It should help you make sense of the hostility that we see coming from the world toward us. And it should prepare us for what to expect if we're open with our faith as we should be. Yes, it's true. We can avoid all this trouble. We can avoid all this persecution if we just uh, isolate ourselves, go off and live on a, on a homestead someplace where nobody will ever see us again, or if we just keep our mouths shut. Yeah, uh, we can avoid trouble that way, but I don't think that's how genuine faith works. Rather, Peter and John give us a memorable picture of the proper response flogged uh, for preaching the Gospel and for not relenting in preaching the Gospel. We read this in Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Persecution is a badge of honor for the Christian. It's evidence of our position as heirs of God, as children of God. The last thing I want to say is, when you consider the world's hatred toward you, there may be a temptation within you to hate the world right back. Don't go there. Don't use their hatred for you as a justification for you hating the world. God loved you enough when you were an enemy, when you were in the world's shoes, to take your heart and to fill it with faith when somebody preached the gospel to you. You think somebody preached the gospel to you without God sending that person? 
He not only ordains the ends, He ordains the means to the ends. If you're a Christian, it's because God sent somebody to preach the Gospel to you. And while they did, God opened your heart to believe and He filled it with faith. So therefore, let us have not only the boldness to preach, but the love for our neighbor that would drive us to preach, knowing that God always uses our preaching. God always uses the preaching of the gospel to accomplish His purposes. When the world hates Christ and and rejects the gospel, that doesn't thwart God's sovereignty. Rather, it fulfills it. The world already hates us. Let us not use that as a reason to hate them or to avoid them, and let us not give the world further reason to hate us. In A.W. Pink's words, he said, quote, Let their enmity toward us be provoked only by our fellowship with Christ. End quote. We have a task to fulfill, friends. A mission to accomplish. And that is preaching the gospel to those who are lost. And our success will require that we love those who hate us enough to tell them the truth regardless of what it might personally cost us. But whatever the cost may be, whatever persecution or trials we may endure as a cost of being faithful to Christ, let us be confident in this. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it challenges us. Thank You for the way that it stretches us. Thank You for the way that it convicts us. Thank You, O Lord, that You have given us understanding by Your Holy Spirit illuminating the text for us. And we pray, O Lord, that You would give us the grace to put this into action. To endure the world's hatred. To endure persecution. To endure trials and troubles that come along with being faithful to You. Oh God, were it not for Your grace sustaining us, we would surely fall away. But You've promised us that we will never be lost. That no one can snatch us from Your hand or from the Father's hand. You've promised us that all who come to You will not be lost, but that You will raise us up on the last day. We thank You, O Lord, for this assurance. And we thank You for the assurance that comes when we are hated by the world for our love for Christ, for our union with Christ. But in those times, O Lord, teach us to seek Your grace to endure and to love those who hate us enough to share the truth with them. That by Your grace, You would accomplish all of Your purposes and that those whom You have called from eternity would be called by the preaching of our Gospel. Thank You, O Lord, for Your Gospel. Give us boldness to preach. Give us boldness and love to obey for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.